I invite you to open your Bibles tonight to uh, the book of Micah. I want to uh, address a topic uh, that I have under consideration tonight from that particular book. And we'll look at uh, the things that are presented under the theme or the title, What Does the Lord Require of Me? I know Caleb had a sermon at the beginning of the year, What Does the Lord Expect of Me? And not to take anything away from that, but this one is different. I'm not preaching the same thing. Maybe what does he expect? Now what does he require? We could, we could say. You know, we've, we have preached a lot in recent days on topics that had to do with, with clarity and a sense of direction and confidence in those areas and uh, we've had a series of lessons on Wednesday nights, how to study the Bible, all of this to reassure ourselves that even as, as foggy as clarity might seem in the world in which we live, that for the Christian and for the one who seeks to follow God and his word, there is clarity and there is a positive sense of direction and guidance that uh, we not only can follow, but we can draw confidence and strength from. The world may be confused, but that doesn't mean we have to be confused. And the world may doubt, but that doesn't mean we have to doubt. And I think the particular passage that we're going to look at tonight in Micah chapter 6 specifically is just such a passage. It's a passage that states God's requirement or His expectations but at the same time, it's a passage that, that gives clarity and certainty at a time when there was a lot of confusion, kind of like what we see today. In fact, if you just, let's just kind of notice some highlights from the book uh, here. You might say that the book of Micah expresses God's controversy with his people and his love for an attitude or a mindset of repentance. God's frustrated when man does wrong, but he has a plan to fix that. And it is a plan enacted through man's turning back to God in, in repentance. So let's notice just a, a few passages here. In chapter 2, notice with me verses 1 through 3 where the, the evilness of the time is, is spoken to Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the, their power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster." from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. So we get the sense of what it was like during the time that Micah is writing and reporting these things on behalf of God. It's an evil time. Look at chapter 3, uh, the first part of uh, verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who chant uh, or who make my people stray, who chant peace. And so here we have 
the people who are supposed to be providing guidance and clarity, but they're not. They're deceiving the people and they're crying peace in a situation and a time when people really aren't at peace, uh, especially not with God. Then turn over to chapter 6 and look at the first three verses with me. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people and he will contend with Israel. And so it's like the foundations of the world are called to witness. This is the grand jury where this complaint is being made and God is going to make his complaint, the world, the foundations of it that have begun before us and that will in all likelihood outlive us here before, hereafter, man makes his journey through this world. They stand as witnesses to the message of God and he calls them to witness, and he even calls them to witness on man's behalf. If man so is inclined to express his complaint uh, against God. And so God has a complaint against the people in this evil time. Now look at chapter 7 and notice verses 1 through 4. Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes, there is no cluster to eat of, the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among them. They all lie and wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net, that they may successfully do evil, notice this, with both hands. The prince asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. And so here we have a multitude of of expressions that describe the situation. There can't, there can't be found a faithful in the land, he says. Those who do evil do it with both hands. They're fully engaged in it. And the best among them is not good at all, he says. And so I look at this, and maybe you do as well, and you think, yeah, I've looked at the society in which I live like that a few times. Now, that's pretty descriptive of the times that, you know, that we scratch our heads over and, and we look at and you say, how, how do you find any clarity, uh, any certainty of direction in all of this? Well, let's back up to chapter 6 and notice verses 6 through 8. Here on behalf of God, Micah says, with what shall I come before the Lord? and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin 
of my soul? Can I just flood God basically with all of these gifts and offerings to appease him so that he will look on things differently? Can, can God be appeased with just superficial, a superficial response to him? Is that what it takes? Look at verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It is on these three expressions I would like for us to spend our time tonight. The first one is that God expects us, regardless of what's happening in the world, He expects us to do justly. If we're going to come to Him in a way that's pleasing to Him, it won't be just in sacrifices and offerings that are an attempt to appease Him. He wants us to do justly. Doing what is right in the sight of God, not in the sight of society, not in our own sight, but in the sight of God. I like what is said of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, where God says of him, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Here we have an example of the very thing that God expects of his people, to do justly, to do what is right, to execute justice and judgment in the will of God. And so Abraham was a great example of that. And God says, my blessings will flow upon Abraham because... He's one who does justly. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the word bears a, a, an important theological meaning. It's about justice based upon what God has said. In fact, the concept, the concept itself was deeply integrated into the Mosaic economy or the Mosaic system. In Exodus chapter 28 and verse 30, there we're reading about the, the breastplate that the high priest would wear that bore the Urim and the Thummim. And it says, And they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord, and Aaron shall do what? He shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually an expression of the very thing God expected of this society of people to be about judgment and justice and to do justly before the God that they were serving. And it's all over the Old Testament in various examples that are given to us. The wisest man who ever lived, though not a perfect man, understood the importance of this idea of doing justly doing what is right. You might remember that God gave Solomon the opportunity to have whatever, whatever he wanted. And Solomon could ask of anything, anything of God in that regard. But in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 11, we read these words, God said unto him, because thou hast asked this thing, 
and not, hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked for riches for thyself, nor hast asked for the, uh, li the life of thine enemies, but you have, have asked for yourself understanding to discern judgment. You remember, that's what Solomon wanted. He wanted wisdom from God that he could lead God's people justly, to do justly to do what was right by God. Later, when Solomon was presented an opportunity to demonstrate that wisdom, you might remember the occasion where the two women had babies and the one had lost her child and she, she did a swap of the children. And when that complaint came before Solomon, and the lady who had lost the child was content with, you know, just let, letting the baby be divided between the two of them physically. The true mother said, no, let her have the baby. And Solomon used his wisdom on that occasion to discern which one was the real mother and to execute what was right and good in that situation. And 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 28 says, All Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was with him to do judgment, to do justly, to do what was right before God. Uh, just one other passage along these lines of, of doing justly. I like what uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 4 through 9 says, uh, with respect to God's expectation of man to do justly. You can either turn there or let's just listen to these words as I, I read them. Behold, all souls are mine as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But if a man be just... And do what is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountains, nor hath lifted up his eyes uh, to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to a menstruous woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment, he, he that hath uh, not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase, that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes, and hath kept my judgments to deal truly, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord. So if you want to know what doing justly looks like, well, here, opposite of what the people of Micah's day were doing, it's not taking advantage of people. It's doing what is right in the sight of God and walking according to his will and his way. And so when I look at the world and society or whatever it is where I might feel like, there's confusion and uncertainty and a lack of clarity. I can remember what Micah said God requires of me, and in the first place, it is to do justly. Now, notice in the second place, 
God's will and His requirement for us is to love mercy. Mercy is loyal love. It's dependable. It's reliable love. It's kindness. And the lexicons and the the tools that we have, some of which we've studied about in our Wednesday night series, teach us that this word has the idea of being based off of a prior relationship. And so mercy recognizes a relationship, a prior existing relationship. And if you think about that from God's perspective, God is kind, he is loyal in love toward us in a relationship. As Christians, we have a covenant relationship with God. And there is a sense in which humanity has a relationship with God, albeit one that's broken because of sin until uh, we come back into fellowship with Him. But loyal love, kindness uh, that is shown to others. This mercy described here is an overflowing characteristic of God. If you want to know what it looks like, look look at God uh, for it. The psalmist said in Psalm 86 and verse 5, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. God is merciful. And if you're a Christian tonight, you know that. At least we should know that because this is the very quality of God to which we appealed when we came out of sin and into Christ Jesus. Just think of all the reasons God has to cast us away, and yet he does it. He is merciful toward us. He receives us back to him with open arms because he has a loyal love, and he has kindness toward us, And he seeks to establish a firm relationship with us. It's interesting when you follow this this idea, this word, you know, through the Old Testament, just to see where you land on some of the places where it appears. And in uh, Joshua chapter 2 and verse 12, uh, it it is this characteristic or this quality to which Rahab appeals when she's pleading with the spies to spare her home and her family and her very own life. And so she sought mercy from them. And so it's the same, the same kind of mercy or the same kind of quality that was extended to her that we see extended to us in God. And it's a quality that we're called upon to bear in our relationships, one where we're willing to be merciful as God is merciful. But I would like to point out a detail in this that we've really not addressed so far. It says that we're to be people who love mercy. Not not just people who want mercy, but we're to be the kind of people that love it. We love to see it. We love to see it extended when it's appropriate and right to extend it. And that's what God expects of us. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 147 
and verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. There is in this idea, uh, the idea of people appealing to and loving and seeking and, and being grateful for mercy. And so when you see people obey the gospel, for instance, that's an occasion where we ought to love the mercy that is being shown to them. When we see brothers and sisters being compassionate toward others who are in a situation needing mercy, it ought to thrill my heart and soul to see mercy extended to others. If I have the opportunity or the occasion to be merciful to someone, it shouldn't be an occasion where where I become haughty or high-minded and think, look what I have done in helping this person. I should come at that situation from the perspective of I have been granted an opportunity to do for someone the very thing that God has done for me, and I love mercy. I love to see mercy extended to others. Mercy and our love for mercy is multidirectional then. We've talked about it in both ways. It's a Godward. Um, it, it works in a Godward direction where you and I are grateful for the mercy that God has extended to us. Think about Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 where Paul said, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. When, when we weren't lovable, we might say, though God's love for us is never diminished, when we were in, a, in the situation where if anybody had a reason not to love us, certainly God did, and that's the very time and the moment in our life where he did extend his mercy. And so I'm grateful for that, and I know you are as well. So it worked, our love for mercy works Godward, but it works in a lateral way, too. We might say neighborly. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 36, Jesus said, Be therefore merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. When, when something so great as the mercy of God has been extended to us, it empowers us through the knowledge and that experience to have a compulsion to do it for others. And so here I am walking in a off-dark world, a world that lacks clarity, a world that is ruthless, just like Micah's day, full of ruthless people taking advantage of people, and yet it's full of people who deserve mercy. And, and again, mercy is just not blindly overlooking uh, the things that do, uh, people do contrary to the will of God. Mercy is a willingness to extend to others what God has extended to us. And we're to be neighborly in that regard. We're to seek opportunities and we're to love the opportunities to do that, to love mercy. And then thirdly, to walk humbly with my God. What does the Lord require of me to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with my God. You know, you can break this down into 
parts, right? There's the walk. Walking is, is action. There's something we're engaged in. We're doing something. We're walking. We're not just sitting idly. We're moving along in a direction, but not just any direction. He says we're to walk with God, to, to be about walking with God. And I read in the Bible of people who walked with God. I think of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, but Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 5 speaks in some detail about that, where it says, By faith Enoch was translated that he did not see death and was not found. God translated him, or God took him. But before he was translated, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And Genesis 5.24 says he walked with God. We're all walking. The world is walking. It's moving. But the lack of clarity, the lack of certainty, the lack of guidance and direction is seen in the way most in the world walk. They walk away from God or they walk contrary to God. But if we're going to do what God requires of us, we're going to walk with God. Now, what does that even mean? Well, it, it means to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. How do I know that? Well, I think of passages like Amos chapter 3 and verse 3. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? How, how can we walk with God if we're not in agreement? If, we, if my leg was tied to God and we were trying to walk, I'm going to have to walk in the same direction or, or it's going to be a, a miserable mess. And the same is true, not, not just physically, but spiritually. When, when my life is a miserable mess, or your life is a miserable mess, or you feel like you don't have clarity, or I feel like I am confused about what God expects of me in a ruthless and wicked world, then maybe I need to look at whether or not I'm really trying to walk with God in the same direction as him, in accordance with his will. But it's not, it doesn't stop there, does it? It's not just about walking. It's not just about walking with God. My Bible and your Bible says we're to walk humbly with my God or our God. And that requires submission. It's not me fighting against God because I don't like the direction that he wants us to walk. It's not questioning whether or not his way is, is right, and I know that happens a lot in this world because a lot of pressure is put on us to accept things that, that are just not consistent with what we read in the book. And so we might try to kick back and we might say, well, you know, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe God hasn't been as clear as he needed to be. Maybe I just need to work on walking humbly with God and not kicking back against him, not questioning his will, but to be fully submissive to it. I, I love Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual duty. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And what about 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7? Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. In other words, we're to submit our understanding and our will to God's truth and walk with him in his truth and do it in humility, in full submission, trusting that his way is right, that it's clear, it's discernible, it's doable. What does the Lord require of me? What does he require of you regardless Regardless of what's going on in the world around us, what does he require? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In the Library of Congress, in the Jefferson Building, in the main reading room, above the figure for religion are these words. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Now, writing it on the wall or engraving it on the wall doesn't make it reality, but some of our leaders probably need to spend more time in the reading room, I guess. It's there. It's not about knowing it. It's just about doing it. It's not a matter of knowing what to do. But doing it just seems to be the greatest challenge. We get distracted by everything that's going on around us. And my challenge to us tonight is to not get distracted. You and I will do more good in this world by doing what the Bible tells us to do than any other way that we might be engaged in the world. And that's not to say we shouldn't be engaged. But don't jump out of walking humbly with God into another situation and forget this part. We need to keep being the kind of people God requires us to be, and we'll do more good that way. In consideration of Israel and Judah, think, think about those nations and all that God had promised and all of the assurance that they had of being a great nation of people. Where are they? Where are they? And how much of our inability to answer that question hinges on the fact that they failed to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. May, I, may God help us not to be like them, 
not to give up, not to lose sight of the clarity that we have in God's word, not to lose sight of the fact that we need to humbly submit to and trust his way to get his will accomplished in this world. And that, in a nutshell, that's not everything God requires of us, and you know that. But I like formulas. I like things in capsule form sometimes. And this, this is a really good one, it seems to me, for us to take with us into the world, a world that in so many ways has lost its mind. If you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. Even in obeying the gospel, it's not, it's not really any different. What does the Lord require of me tonight if I'm not a Christian? To do justly, to do what's right and good in the sight of God, to love mercy, the mercy that he's willing to shower down upon you in your repentance and turning to him and a willingness to walk humbly with him through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism for the remission of your sins, tonight you can become a Christian. Or maybe just express your interest in knowing more and giving us an opportunity to study with you. Maybe you have some other need that we can help you with tonight. Whatever it is, we're going to sing a song to encourage, and you have this opportunity to come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.